Hi everyone, it's Amelia Quint. Welcome to Bad Astrologers, where we take a cultural, spiritual, literary, and mythological look at the heavens. As always, this podcast is made possible by our patrons. Our community of mystics is growing all the time, so come join us. For a small monthly contribution, you'll get access to bonus episodes, monthly forecasts and horoscopes, Q&A videos where you can ask your juiciest astrology questions, and for our new Vesta supporters, a taroscope and secret discount on readings with yours truly. If all that sounds like your cup of tea, head over to patreon.com slash badastro to dive right in. There's a big archive to keep you busy if you need a good distraction right about now. Another easy way to show your support is by leaving a positive review on iTunes so the algorithm can work its magic and share this podcast with more people. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Bad Astrologers to stay up to date on when new episodes and goodies like forecasts, horoscopes, and Q&A videos are released. Finally, if you really love the show, tell a friend. Few things are as good as getting an amazing recommendation from someone you know has great taste, which you definitely do. So don't be shy and share the love. Now, time for the episode. Today's guest, Philip Picardi, has a big resume and an even bigger heart. Yes, he's led such publications as Teen Vogue, Them, and Out Magazine, and is only now entering his Saturn return, which we talk about, don't worry. But the thing about him that made the most lasting impression on me since I wrote for Teen Vogue back when it was under his leadership years ago is that he's courageous. He's a daring triple fire sign who isn't afraid to talk about tough topics like politics, sexuality, and most recently, religion. When I saw he was writing about Lady Gaga as Mary Magdalene for Easter in his brand new newsletter, Fruity, and developing a podcast called Unholier Than Thou, which was set to tackle the complexities of religion and modern life, I had so many questions. Questions he was gracious enough to answer in this episode. He also let me read his natal chart, and the results are both hilarious and heartfelt. So without any further ado, sit back, relax, take a deep breath, and enjoy the show. Hi, Phil. Thank you so much for joining us on Bad Astrologers today. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited slash nervous. Don't be nervous. Astrology readings are fun. <laughs> I'm not sure. You know, I, I agree with you. I think they are fun. Normally, I my experience with astrology is that whenever someone invites you to a reading, you should be prepared to be read. Okay? So that is, that is what I am <laughs> That is very, very true. The memes are all accurate. So don't worry, I won't I won't drag you too hard or anything, I promise. So <laughs> Okay, good. Great. <laughs> so this is gonna be like one part interview, one part astrology reading. Um we'll start out with a little bit of chat about your experiences with astrology, just so everyone can get an idea of where we're coming from. And then sure. we'll dig into everything you have going on in your life and career by looking at your natal chart, especially your sun, moon, and Venus. So, you ready? Interesting. Yes, I love Sailor Venus. She was one of my favorite sailor uh, soldiers. <gasps> oh, yes. I, I'm a sailor Jupiter for sure. So, <laughs> got it. Okay. Got it. Now, now that that's been established. Um, so one question that I like to ask all of our guests on Bad Astrologers is, what is the earliest memory that you have that involves astrology? Was it reading your horoscope or finding out your sun sign? Good question. Um, I remember having a computer in my bedroom. Do you remember when computers had a tower and a monitor, yes. like a monitor? <laughs> Uh, and I was lucky enough to be one of those kids who had a computer in, in their bedroom, um, which my parents promptly regretted because I never left my bedroom after that. Um, but I used to go on these like, you know, live journal looking astrology websites and read my horoscope. Um, 
So I would say that is probably my first time. And if, and if it was earlier than that, it was really through like those teeny bopper magazines. Like I used to read Tiger Beat and, and YM and all of those. Um, and so maybe I was also reading about my, my star sign and, and my dream cat crush and why he wasn't in love with me um, as an eight-year-old. <laughs> I remember those in Cosmo. It was like, why does your crush not love you? Oh, it's because he's a Gemini. Um, I yeah. guess that hasn't changed. I think everyone still says that, but <laughs> I agree. And as no. someone who is engaged to a Gemini, I can confirm that you never really know entirely if they love you 100% of the time. Oh, wow. I did not know your fiance was a Gemini. Okay. So I'm a Gemini moon. I understand the, the Gemini hate struggle. It's a problem. <laughs> I work hard every day to sort of dispel that for sure. Um, it's so, um, interesting that you mentioned the old like live journal websites, because that was really how I got started too. I, I had a America online and a dial up connection and I would go to like GeoCity sites had flashing like star backgrounds that looked like they were going to give you a headache. And I don't know, I think my parents thought I was watching porn cause I would like lock myself in my bedroom, but I was really just looking at astrology, but. I don't oh, know. In my house, that was probably just as bad. Yeah. No, I was. I <laughs> my father also would consider both of them equally as bad. He he believed that astrology is a weapon of Satan, um, and oh that there are some things that we are not meant to know, and that um, if we try to communicate with um, with earthly powers, I guess that we are communicating with demons and not with um, with agents of God. So that was my warning when I would read my horoscope from my father. That is a very intense warning. Like uh, in my household, most things weren't spoken aloud. It was just this ominous sense of, you know, most things are bad and you shouldn't do them. But I feel like as a child hearing that things are, are demonic probably was very difficult. <laughs> Sometimes it was scary. And then other times you kind of had the wherewithal to be like, whatever, it's just a horoscope, you psychopath. But um, I, I do remember, we, you know, ultimately, my father used the devil a lot to scare us. And so, you know, he kind of lost his power in that sense. So anyways, uh, and look at me now, I'm homosexual. Mm -hmm. So yeah, <laughs> it all turned out fine. Now, <laughs> looking at your chart, this is um, jumping ahead a little bit, but I did notice. So as a Leo rising, you have at the very base of your chart is called your IC um, in Scorpio. And that's a point in the chart that is really useful right now because it has to do with the home and the family. Um, and since we've all sort of been sequestered into our homes, hopefully everyone is in their home sheltering in place and being safe. Um, it's a place you can look to get ideas of, okay, what would make me feel comfortable? What would make me feel good right now? Um, but in a chart, it also tells you about the overall tone and, and vibe of your childhood and things that you may have gone through. And Scorpio is very, it's a very spiritual, it's very intense, and it can have sort of a shadowy, dark overtone. So the, um, you know, the devil as, um, punishment and instead of actually being rewarded for things like I, I could definitely see that being a part of it for sure. Interesting. So there's a shadowy overtone in my home sector. Yeah. And you know, as far as that relates to the quarantine, I think you naturally can have a sense of wanting to like you need your alone time. You know, you're a huge extrovert. There's tons of fire in your chart and you need to be around people. Um, but there's also a side of you that wants to just shut all the doors and go down a rabbit hole on like, I don't know why Gemini doesn't love you or, um, the real, there's a depth, you know, you bring a depth to everything that you do. And that's part of why I wanted to have this conversation with you, you know, is there's that sense of always wanting to find out like what, what's one layer underneath? Like if I peel the onion back one more time, what am I going to find there? You know, and never being satisfied with the surface. Yeah, that's so funny. My, I am often identified by my friends as an introverted extrovert because I do require so much alone time in order to be like a quality person when I am mm -hmm. surrounded by other folks. Hmm, I love that. Speaking of the extrovert side, I want to jump into your sun and Aries. 
I okay. love every Aries that I meet. So when I found out you were an Aries, I was like, well, obviously this makes sense. Um, <laughs> but I know you're you're very proud and you're Aries in that. So what is it in that archetype that you connect with the most? Or what would you say is your most Aries trait? My most Aries trait is definitely that I am headstrong and confident. Um, obviously, you know, just like any quality that you have that you love in yourself or in someone else, there is a flip side to the coin. And mm -hmm. certainly I know that uh, Aries has a lots, lots of flip sides um, to their attributes. Um, but, you know, I've come to really rely on that confidence and, and that head strength, I guess, if, if that's yeah. the proper word, in order to build myself up and remain optimistic even when things were looking pretty dour i find that useful in this current situation i i do think mm -hmm. that of my friends i remain the most optimistic um in this moment especially when we're talking to each other and sharing stories with one another um mm -hmm. and, I, and i think that you know generally speaking when things have had a pretty negative outlook in my career i've found a way to swim out of or swim against the current towards I guess, greener pastures. And so, um, yeah, I've, I've really been relying on those elements of Aries, just like constantly burning and constantly searching for something bigger and better um, in this moment in particular. Mm, I love that so much, the like constantly burning and trying to find something to keep that fire going. Um, looking at your Aries sun, it's interesting to me because like you have a, a cluster of other things around your sun that makes it ev shine even brighter and be even more important. Um, so hmm. I don't know if you've ever looked at this, but you have no. um, dwarf planet Eris, um, who was the goddess who threw out the golden apple that started the Trojan War and got Athena, Hera and um, Aphrodite all fighting with each other um, right on top of your sun. And so it's actually a really, really fun thing. It, it, it can mean that you're a little bit of a shit stirrer. Like you're always <laughs> like, hmm, let me stir the pot a little bit and, and just see what happens. How could that possibly be you? Um, but it, she's also associated with social justice and helping people find the courage to fight for the rights of the people that need the most. Um, awesome. And when I was thinking about celebrity examples, you know, one person that has this really prominent um, on their rising sign is Rihanna, who I love. Ooh. Um, yes. And when you think about her, her public image overall, but especially like how she's handled the quarantine, you know, I, she's always running around with her wine glass or probably a blunt and ha making a great time of things and stirring the party pot a little. But she's also she has done more than some whole nations have done to help people directly who have been impacted by the pandemic, you know? Yes, absolutely. I love that Rihanna um, lives in her layeredness. And I think that she's a great uh, example of that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I feel like I see the same thing in you for sure. Like there's the sense of being like a firebrand who can really galvanize people and communities to actually take action, you know? Um, I think oh, I first sort of met you met you acquaintanced with you on Twitter back in the Teen Vogue days, um, in yes. like 2015, 2016. Um, and that was just such an amazing moment seeing the ways that we, you know, and especially you were able to take away some of the boundaries between um, fashion and pop culture it has to stay over here. And here's politics or um, being socially aware over here and it's come a really long way that now I think hopefully consumers are thinking about those things going hand in hand, right? I think they are, right? I, I do see a lot of that in this in this moment. Like what, what we did at Teen Vogue was like, it basically was a way of saying you can care just as much about fashion as you do about electing the first women to be president of the United States and mm -hmm. that you can put just as much energy into both of those things. Um, and I think that that was a possibility model that has existed in the past for men, right, who are often rewarded um, if they mm. if they care about looking good enough, right? Like if they if they are well dressed and also intelligent and humanitarian, like Brad Pitt and George Clooney, they become icons, right? But a lot of the women Absolutely. who have entered into that territory, whether that was Eartha Kitt or whether that was Jane Fonda or any number of, of celebrities that kind of came before this moment in time. 
um, they were often mal maligned or chastised. And, and so um, I think I just felt like I felt frustrated by that, by observing that, especially coming from an internship at GQ, where I witnessed mm -hmm. the glorification of, of the well-rounded man and that I didn't mm. see that as much media at the time. Um, and now it's almost like unthinkable looking back on that moment to think right. that women's media is always that. Um, and, and certainly, you know, I'm speaking as though women's media is a monolith. Certainly there were editors like Robbie Myers at L, um, who really mm -hmm. made that her business to do for a long time before Teen Vogue. Cindy Livia Glamour is another good example of that. Um, but I just, I wanted to make sure that we could bring that energy to, to Teen Vogue. And of course it was thankfully and, and um, honor, honorably, it was, it was the highlight of, of my career because it was such a success. Yeah, absolutely. Mm, I love that so much. Um, while we're talking about the social justice aspects of things, I'm curious what you think about the ways that astrology has become like a fixture of the queer community and queer culture. Um, like you, you almost can't look at a, a queer woman's personal ad without seeing, you know, sun, moon rising, show me the sun, moon rising. Um, where do you think that link comes from? Um, do you have any ideas? <laughs> you know what? I don't know that I, I do have the right answer for this. I will say that you are absolutely correct that astrology is a fixture among the queer community, particularly, I would say, like you kind of alluded to, among queer women and I guess like femme adjacent folks. Uh -huh. um, I, I do think that there is certainly something to look towards in terms of how queer people have been treated by mainstream religion or institutionalized religion. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that we were often turned away from those institutions um, or discriminated against by those institutions, right? Um, and so in doing so, a lot of queer people may have just internalized their spirituality and kept it as a private practice. But, you know, queer people in general, like these are artists, these are guardians, these are our creatives, these are our very generous souls. Like, you know, these are the people who have always been uplifting and creating an innovating culture. And, and I think that spirituality often accompanies, accompanies that nature very hand in hand, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that it's no it's no mistake that queer people find themselves reflected in spirituality or or love to seek spirituality in astrology um, because astrology feels like a a universe that um, we can immerse ourselves in that is welcoming and embraces duality and doesn't shame any aspects of characteristics and encourages us to embrace all of them and without with that absence of shame right which is so prevalent in so many religious um institutions you know it feels like a welcoming a welcoming place to exist mm, absolutely i agree with that 100 percent. and i um talking to clients and and the experiences that i've had i think that is absolutely the uh, i'm sure there's a myriad of reasons but maybe the most prominent reason is that we have been shut out of traditional religious structures and astrology is this really beautiful mirror that allows us to see both the best and worst in ourselves and really hold that and see that it can be spiritual and beautiful and that we aren't broken yeah. but are in fact whole you know historical, yeah there's historical precedent there too like you know it, these are all speculations but looking back into plato and phaedrus um which is his text where he alludes to homosexuality looking back to rumi even and many people and philosophers have speculated as to whether or not you know, Rumi was themselves was himself queer. Um, looking back to the role of an, of of trans folks or two spirit individuals in indigenous communities as healers, as uh, mediators. I mean, there's historical precedent um, for queer people to who were believed at one point to be closer to God or closer to um, a higher kind of sense of philosophy or spirituality. So, I, I guess I guess in that sense, it it it, it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm, 100%. And one thing that I think astrology has done a lot better in recent years, so in its past, I think astrology and astrologers have done a, a poor job, maybe not themselves, but it could be, you know, society's influence too, of characterizing um, gender as a binary and sort of forcing people into, well, you know, if you're a male, then you'll like, your Venus will show the type of woman that you like, but um in more recent years people have really expanded their view of of what that can be and 
used it to find, you know, the the loveliness within themselves and that people are worthy of love in their own strange way. You know, we all just bring something different to it. So, yeah. Yes, I love that. <laughs> so I want to switch gears a little bit and move over to your moon in Sagittarius, um, which I am biased. I have Sagittarius rising, so I love that you have Sagittarius moon. Um, oh, interesting. I, yeah, I feel like it dovetails perfectly with this conversation that we're having about media and religion because Sagittarius is both. So Sagittarius and the ninth house, they are about expansion, right? And so that can be like publishing or reaching a really wide audience via a magazine or an online platform. Um, but it's also things like organized religion, um, which appeals to a massive amount of people, um, philosophy, like you just mentioned, Plato and Rumi, and also politics. So I think if anything, the sign of Sagittarius shows us that all those things, they not only coexist, but they are cosmically under the same umbrella. So Wow, oh, yeah. that's so interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so having your moon in Sagittarius, I feel like the moon is your comfort zone. It's like what you are innately good at, where you feel safe. Um, and so in that case, it's like media is your comfort zone. You know, um, I know you were sort of involved from such a, a young, young age. It's like, you know, it seems like media has also in part become like a family for you. So how early in life did you know you wanted to go into media? Um, I knew really when I... I guess like first first was like unlocking that I was queer and coming out of the closet and then shortly thereafter came this obsession with magazines. I, I mean, I had always read mm -hmm. magazines before, but once I came out of the closet, I felt comfortable buying magazines that like had women in them or that were primarily women's interests. I used to be ashamed of like asking my mom to buy me those um, as a mm -hmm. kid. So once I got over that and I started reading Vogue and Vanity Fair, was when I realized that I wanted to go into media. And in fact, it was Jennifer Aniston's first magazine cover with Vanity Fair after the, um, the, the affair between Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie was, was discovered. Oh. It was her first mm -hmm. interview, first full-fledged magazine profile. And I was a huge Angelina Jolie fan at the time. I still am a fan of both women. I never picked a side. Um, but okay. I remember reading that profile and being like, wow, you can, you can tell a story with images and with text and it's someone's job to go and like sit with Jennifer Aniston and, and parse through all of these feelings with her, you know? And I was just completely floored. And I remember <laughs> that was when I decided that journalism was something I wanted to pursue. Now, when Vogue, you know, came into my universe and I started reading that more religiously. I actually had a friend who kind of like educated me on the Met Gala and what the Met Gala was. And she was so interested in fashion. I, by the way, am still friends with th this person. She was my first ever girlfriend, quote unquote, in middle, in elementary school. Oh, um, that's really sweet. And she and her mom took me on a road trip to the, to the Met Museum. It was my first time going to the Met. And, um, and we tore through, you know, the Vogue um, edition that month of the Met Gala, which was the model as muse exhibit. And those were mm -hmm. the, the photos that I would eventually hang up on my uh, dorm room wall at NYU as I, you know, figured out my way of like how I could get into the Vogue universe. And it was basically five months after moving into NYU that I became an internet team Vogue. So um, mission accomplished. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. It, you know, looking at your chart, it seems like there was never a universe in which this wasn't going to be your life. Like you were literally born to be a part of that universe, you know, like every little thing interlinks together to make that just a cosmic fact. I could sit here for 30 minutes and explain all the different ways well, why that's true, but um, we don't have that much time. I'll email it to you, I guess. That'd be great. 100%. So looking at media in the way that astrology star, so to speak, has just risen to amazing heights 
really since the 2016 election was when it started. But I remember when I first started doing astrology, I created an astrology website because I live in South Carolina and people were starting to find out. Um, and some people weren't very happy about that or they didn't understand it. And so I thought, well, if I create a blog, if I create my own website, I can control the conversation about what people think astrology is or what people think astrology means to me. Um, but it definitely came out of a place of a little bit of fear, you know, so seeing the way that astrology has become, it's an app on every phone, you know, it's a column in every magazine. It just has blown my mind so much. Like, what was it like to you to see the sort of astrology star rise as a media professional? You know, what's so funny. We, um, now that you're saying all of this out loud, it's reminding me of something that I haven't thought about in a while, but I was a... <laughs> There was a moment during um, the Black Lives Matter protest where there was a, a big march and demonstration and the activist DeRay McKesson was arrested. And mm -hmm. of all of the media outlets that were calling the police station to find out where DeRay was and if he was okay, um, I was the only journalist who got an answer from the police department when I called. I was calling, I was wow. in the Hamptons at the time. I was like on vacation with my partner and, you know, we went back immediately to the house as soon as we found out that Jure was apprehended and, and uh, every, you know, calling busy tone, couldn't get a, a hold of anyone. Finally, I, I guess one of the bailiffs is, is that the, the, I don't even know if that's the right. I believe so. Yeah. Um, answered the phone and I put on my sweetest voice and said I was calling from Teen Vogue and I just wanted to check in on one of their um you know, recent arrests and his name was Jerry McKesson and she confirmed and she said that he was, you know, okay. And that he was to be released, you know, shortly. And, and we posted it on Twitter and all of these people swarmed Teen Vogue's mentions. Like, I can't believe Teen Vogue is doing this. This was before Lauren Duca had published the gaslighting article and, and, you know, the whole oh, world. Yeah. Uh -huh. So we, I remember being approached by a fellow journalist at Condé Nast, like someone who was very, prominent, let's just say, I'm obviously not mm -hmm. going to name him. And he messaged me and, and basically was like, I'm such a fan of everything you guys are doing. You know, congratulations. You know, you really brought intelligence to that publication, but what the hell are horoscopes doing on your website? It's just such bad. It's a, such a bad example for young girls. And I was like, I I'm sorry. First of all, thank you for the backhanded compliment. Second of all, yeah. why, why, just out of curiosity, of all things, you know, why are horoscopes the thing that you're worrying about for young women? Um, and he said it was pseudoscience and it was going to mislead people into believing that their fates were predetermined. And, you know, I just kind of responded to him and said that, unfortunately, that's a real misunderstanding of like what astrology is mm -hmm. um, and that fundamentally, if that is his complaint with astrology, he should have the same complaint with Catholicism, with Judaism, with, you know, any other uh, spirituality, like, uh, or institution of religion that tells you about life and tells you about death, right? Like, they're not really that different. Just because one is less respected by the mainstream doesn't mean fundamentally they're all that different. Um, and so anyways, that's, that's so funny that you that you bring that up. That's the first time I've remembered that story. It's a really good story. And you know what? It does not surprise me at all. I've got, I've gotten every range of responses to the work that I do as an astrologer that, you know, are, the backhanded compliments are usually my favorite though. The you're so smart. It, it, it's so interesting that you still believe in astrology is usually the worst one. Um, to which I usually just respond, people have been doing this for thousands of years and no one claims that it's scientific. And maybe if you studied a little more, you could see how beneficial it is to uh, people who are looking for a way to understand themselves or a little bit of hope. Yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So you brought up, I love that you mentioned that it, if you have a problem with astrology, why not Catholicism? Why not other organized religions? So I know you're starting a new podcast with Crooked Media called Unholier Than Thou, which I'm very excited about. And you just Thank put you. out your newsletter, Fruity, which is great. Um, so what, what made you want to use your platform to start a conversation about religion? That's a great question. Um, you know what? I mean, I have had... Religion was a formative component of my upbringing. My dad was very religious. 
And my dad was religious, but only recently has my dad started to be spiritual. And that's been uh, a welcome addition to our conversations and our relationship dynamic. Um, but growing up in a religious household and then going to Catholic school, um, it, it just took a real toll on me. Like it actually was a real burn on my self-esteem. Mm. And I felt myself overcompensating in all of these ways to prove something to this invisible they. Um, and I felt like if I could only be as successful as I became, if I could only be as well quoted and well respected as I did end up becoming, then, you know, that would show everyone that I was worthy. And what happened in my career is basically that it became a, a lot less about the quality of the work that I was doing and a lot more about the perception of the work that I was doing. And that was a really dangerous line for me to toe. And I didn't feel good about that. So when eventually I would be laid off by Out Magazine in December after battling the company to get freelancers paid and battling for transparency with um, the people who invested in the company who were all heterosexual men, um, mm. I really, I really had like a sheer crisis of identity of like, what am I doing and what is my purpose here? And the first place I thought to turn was towards God. Now, this was weird because I hadn't prayed since the day after I came out of the closet when I was 14 years old. And um, I found myself just like, I, I had a lot of questions and I also had a lot of answers that I realized that I had found to my questions um, about who Jesus was, about what religion's role is in faith. And that's when I, I, I started just putting pen to paper about like, what it could mean to have a new media something or other. And I eventually landed on podcast that explored the concept of spirituality through a progressive lens, because what I realized the more that I read in the more progressive voices in various religions and faiths that I listened to is that the heart of every single world religion is justice, right? And the search for justice is the search for godliness whoever you think God is, and it doesn't matter who you think God is, you know, or where you find God or how you practice to get closer to God. God can mean mindfulness. God um, can mean creating beauty. God um, can mean community service. God God can mean whatever, whatever it means to you, right? And, and God can change. You know, the definition of God can change for you as, as you continue on your path towards enlightenment. And I you know, at the risk of sounding too earnest, I just felt like that was not something that was being explored um, with a lot of seriousness in plenty of our publications and platforms. And I figured, well, you know, what better way for me to figure out this next step of my career than by documenting um, my own crisis of faith and identity. And so here I find myself. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I, you know, as soon as I saw, first of all, the name Unholier Than Thou is perfect. Um, but I feel, I felt a real kinship with that um, because um, I, I have had a similar trajectory of spirituality of some real um, painful experiences after coming out of the closet. Um, but still being involved as a spiritual practitioner is part of my, my job, you know, and trying to find um, what that means and, and how it all works. And I don't think there's a single answer to how it all works. But um, I started this podcast from much the same place, right, where I saw um, I felt like astrology wasn't being approached with the seriousness it deserved or the the fun that it deserved either there was there was two there's sort of two astrology factions which i don't know if you're privy to but one is like hyper academic yeah. and one is like let's post a meme on instagram which i love a good meme that will drag me but um for a, a practice that is so deeply rooted in both religion and spirituality you know um, it was a part of the Catholic Church until only a few hundred years ago, and nobody talks about that. Um, right? right? Yes. Crazy. <laughs> and the cosmos is such a beautiful thing. And I also was reading recently about the Hesychists and the mystic tradition of the Hesychists and, and, and what they believe in terms of 
transcendence during meditation and, and all of these elements of, of the faith that have been, I guess, like incorporated or, or looked at to be like folksy in a way or like folk tradition. So, you know, my yeah. family is obviously from Italy and, and a lot of the women in my family, you know, of my, my mom's uh, lineage, like her, her grandparents, her great grandparents, even they all believed that they had apparitions of saints, right? And that the saints mm -hmm. appeared to them in moments of crisis. And today we would call those women, you know, ludicrous, but like, who's to say they, they didn't, right? You know, like, absolutely was a native part of, of faith. And when you think about the beautiful ways that mysticism merges with Christianity in, in Mexico, right? Dia de los Muertos yeah. and, and other various traditions, it all, it all makes, it all makes sense. Like Catholicism <laughs> has, very complex spiritual roots. I was thinking about it just with Easter um, last weekend. Um, I remember the moment that I found out that Easter was a holiday that moved around the calendar because it was the first Sunday after the full, first full moon after the spring equinox. And my eyebrow just like pricked up a little bit like, hmm, tell me more about that. Um, yeah. And I wrote in my newsletter actually about Easter because what's funny is that, you know, Mary Magdalene, who was the first person who Christ appeared to, is also the reason we have Easter eggs because she mm -hmm. went to the court of Tiberius Caesar and she said, you know, she told the story of Jesus and his life and his resurrection. And someone said to her, you know, Christ resurrected just as much as this egg on the table will turn red. And Mary basically picked up the egg and it turned red. And, um, and even that is proof that, you know, there was mysticism at the root of all of these, you know, miracles that Christ and uh, later his followers performed that, um, that, yeah, are just have now woven their way into being beautiful traditions. But so that egg is now the reason we have colored Easter eggs on, on Easter. It's so cool. I love reading about Mary Magdalene. I knew when I saw in your newsletter that you would put, um, lady gaga as mary magdalene in the judas video then like we were speaking the same spiritual language 100 <laughs> percent. <laughs> yes gaga yeah, i love i love uh gaga and madonna and the way that they've played with with catholic references in particular same for sure on the topic of catholicism another uh fun question for you i'm curious so there seems to be this like catholicism to occultism pipeline um, I see it in my clients. I see it in the astrology industry. It's totally a thing. Um, do you have any guesses as to why you think so many people shift from Catholicism to the occult things like astrology or tarot or more mystical practices? Interesting. Well, I mean, it, it ties into what we were talking about before, that there are these mm -hmm. elements of paganism and mysticism and then the occult that exist within Catholicism. So. I was never really privy to these things being foreign because Catholic churches were the only uh, religious institutions I've ever been in. But mm -hmm. it wasn't until my, my partner came with me to a funeral, a Catholic funeral, that he was like, what the hell is going on? You know, he was like a little scared. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> the people come in with the robes and the people follow them who are also in robes. And then there is like the smoke machine that they bring out that they <laughs> around and then they throw water on you. And a lot of it is just very theatrical. Mm -hmm. um, all of these things, you know, I'm sure can be traced to pagan rituals or elements of paganism. Um, just like you mentioned, Easter is, is traced to paganism. Christmas is also, um, you know, has roots at that time of year as a pagan holiday too, or pagan feast. I, I can't remember which. Um, but I think that that's why, like, the, you know, the, the very things that hate each other the most or appear the most opposite are also, you know, two sides of the same sword. You know what I mean? They're very, very strange bedfellows. Absolutely. They do seem to be two sides of the same coin for sure. Yes. So I want to switch gears one more time and talk a little okay. bit about fashion and beauty because you have the most amazing Venus in your chart. You have Venus in Taurus, which is one of the signs that she rules. And Taurus is about, it's a sign of beauty, right? It's a sign of not just beauty, but like beauty in a material sense that you can hold and touch. And I feel like fashion, garments, um, cosmetics, these are all very um, Venus and Taurus things. And it's in your 10th house, which is your career. So like, I, that's the most like literal astrological formula I could think of for 
um, someone who's ended up being so involved with both fashion and beauty. I have Venus in the 10th house too. So we're, we're sort of twins in that way. Um, at the tippy tippy top of our charts. Hmm? So what does that mean that it's in the 10th house? Yeah. So the 10th house is associated with your career, your profession. Um, but it's more than just your day job, right? It's, it's what you become known for. It can be like your reputation or if there's fame involved, like, um, your public image, it can also be, um, your vocation, right? So if you look at the chart, it's that circle shape. Um, and the 10th house is the one at the very top at, um, 12 o'clock basically. Um, so the way I like to think of the 10th house is it's what you are striving for, or, um, if you're really doing your best, that is the best you can do, right? It's, um, I don't want to say your purpose because I don't believe we have one singular purpose, but it's definitely, um, some more akin to a calling. Like how will you through your, um, interaction with the public be of service to the world. Um, and in Taurus, I, you know, with Taurus being art and beauty and fashion, I think, um, you do a really good job of actually making something that people perceive as not being of service or, you know, in, in conversations I've had with folks recently, it's like, do these things even matter? But I would say they do, they can be so healing. Right. Um, yes, absolutely. Oh, that's so good to hear. 100%. Yeah. I was, you talked about this a little in your newsletter, but I, I did want to ask. Um, so with everything that's happened with this pandemic, it can feel, at least for me, I'll go into the, the bathroom and be like, okay, I'm going to do something for myself. I'm going to self-care. But it kind of feels at times like beauty and fashion. It's like, how, how do we connect with that? does it even matter in a world where you can't even go outside or so much bad has happened? So any advice mm -hmm. on how we can heal our relationship with those things, given the current circumstances? You know, I always think about at the end of the day, the last person that, you know, you see, right. Or the last thing that you have to do, one of the last things you have to do before you go to bed is mm -hmm. you have to look in the mirror. And mm -hmm. when you wake up in the morning, and you're getting ready for your day, you probably at some point will start that day with a long, hard look in the mirror, even if it's just while you're brushing your teeth and like then, you know, going to get your coffee, whatever it is. And I think that those reflections, those literal and uh, metaphorical reflections are important moments of time because it reminds me that we have to feel comfortable with who we are and what we see in order to, you know, basically right whatever wrongs that we we want to in the world that in the world that day. And I and I don't just mean that in the sense of cosmetic appearances. I don't just mean that doesn't mean that you have to put on makeup or whatever in order to feel good. It does mm -hmm. mean, however, that you have to find your own inner beauty. You have to find your own sense of beauty, I think. Um, and you have to be able to see beauty in yourself to bring out beauty in others. And so I think, you know, as, as beauty relates to self-care, you know, that conversation has become a bit of a minefield because it's been so co-opted by marketing and commercialism, uh, and, and, you know, kind of like totally. this consumer that the more bath products we have, the more time we'll take for ourselves and then we'll feel better. I actually don't think that's true. I think that's a trap. Mm -hmm. Um, I do, however, think that self-improvement you know, can start with the way that we express ourselves and, and the indicators that we provide to people um, based on how we dress and, and how we create our faces. And, and I do think that, you know, the more confident you can be before you walk out the door, um, I think it, it does add something that's intangible to your spirit. Um, and, you know, we, I, I, it's funny, I've been reading Rumi and and one of the funny things about Rumi is that he calls the body he calls it your friend and basically it's this idea that you're like you're renting out this body your soul will transcend but like this bag mm. of bones that we occupy is something that we're just leasing you know we do not own it it does not belong to us ultimately it belongs to the earth and our soul belongs to a higher power and so while you know you can you can interpret that in two very important ways and, and the first is that 
everything in this physicality is temporary and therefore you should not get obsessed or too caught up in um, or get too vain about the way that you appear. But at the right. same time, you know, since we are occupying this form, we have to respect it and we have to treat it well. Um, and that goes into everything with how, with what you eat and how you adorn yourself. Um, and so I, I find that, that, you know, these things to be extremely reassuring in, in a moment of time, when I go out for a daily walk, when the weather is nice and permitting in New York, I'm putting on my best outfit. I am making sure that someone from behind their mask will see me and that something I'm wearing is going to make them smile. Um, and I love, you know, being able to put on makeup, you know, just so that I can go see my neighbors walking out on the street that day. Like, and I can, I can look my best for them. And yes, on its face, you may be able to call me vain for that. And I'm totally comfortable with whatever you want to call <laughs> me for the way I conduct myself. But really like, if I'm making myself happy and in turn, I want to transfer that happiness to someone else. It's my business. How, how we go about that. That's perfect. I love it. I feel like that's a perfect place to close out is, um, on a note of, uh, love for yourself. And I don't think it's vain at all. I think looking <laughs> after your body, the thing that houses your soul is a very important spiritual act. Beauty is a spiritual practice. It really, really is. So, mm. yes, this has been wonderful. I know you're about to have a Saturn return. Don't be afraid of your Saturn return. You're going to ace when it. Start? I thought I was already in the Saturn return. So you're, you're kind of like in the middle of it. It'll have a couple of passes as Saturn retrogrades. Um, it'll sort of ease up over the summer a little bit after from like July to December. Um, because we're going to have Saturn back into Capricorn and yours is in Aquarius. Um, but then for the next year or so, you'll be um, in in the full on Saturn return situation. But I love and Saturn is, transits. Oh, go ahead. What does that mean? I'm sorry. Oh, okay. So Saturn return is probably the thing that as an astrologer, I get the most questions about probably because Gwen Stefani made an amazing record with no doubt about it. <laughs> um, so every planet in the sky, it, it's always moving through the different constellations, but eventually it'll, it'll come since it's, since it's circular, it's cyclical. It'll come back to the exact same place it is in your natal chart. Um, so Saturn takes a long time. It takes 28 years to transit through all the signs. So, when you're approximately 28, 29-ish, um, it'll come back to that point. And what it ends up feeling like is a double dose of that planet's energy. You really get home. It's like you put on a pair of glasses and you can see so much more clearly the messages that that planet has for you. So Saturn is the planet that nobody likes because Saturn is associated with responsibility and discipline and just plain hard work um, and things that are really difficult, like owning your authority um, and wielding power in a way that is good for everyone and not just yourself. Um, so during a Saturn return, those are really the messages uh, because it happens at 28. I think it, you know, a lot of people look at it as like the traditional end to childhood. Like when you're in your mid twenties, you can kind of claim like, no, oh, I'm still pretty young. I'm doing my youthful thing. And then once a Saturn return hits, so Saturn is also the planet of time. And the biggest thing is that you are suddenly so much more aware of the passing of time, right? Cause you're what, a third of quarter of the way through your life. It's the quarter life crisis, right? So. Um, mm -hmm. you have to get right with, well, in your case, get right with God, I guess. Um, and, mm -hmm. and what your actions in this life have been so far and say, am I happy with what that's been? Or do I want to do more? And hopefully we all respond to that challenge with, I want to do more. I want to do better. Um, and, and Saturn, even though he brings really reality checks and the tough lessons, um, Saturn is also associated with career. And I think it's a time, it's a great time to double down on, um, whatever really serious career goals you have. And it responds well to structure and discipline. I think about it like going to the gym. 
So like if you start with a new trainer on the first day, your body is going to be broken and you're going to be laying on the mat like, why did I agree to sign up for this? It was so stupid. And then by the end, when you're really proud of not just the way your body looks, but the way your body feels, you feel really strong, then you really get to reap the rewards of it. Excellent. That was such a great and succinct description. I just took notes. Thank you. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Um, so yeah, yours is going to be in your house of relationships. Um, but I know that you have a fiance and you're going to be getting married soon. So, I mean, what better thing? Saturn is also like long-term relationships. So it doesn't mean you're going to break up. In fact, I think you'll probably grow closer than ever. So I'm looking forward to seeing how it shakes out for you. Does relationship also apply to family? Yeah. Um, so the seventh house is one-on-one -on -one partnerships. Um, so it can be, it can be a fiance or a romantic partner. It can be a business partner. So if there's someone in your life, who's like a, a mentor type figure, um, or if there's like a, a best friend, like a brother or sister could play that role. Or if you're really close with your parents, that could also play in as well. Um, not so much family as a general rule, but the the one-on-one -on -one relationship that you have with the individual members, for sure. Got it. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's going to be beautiful, and don't be afraid. It's actually really fun. I feel <laughs> I'm, aware. I'm the weirdo who <laughs> likes to argue with it. It sounds excruciating. But you know what? I, I feel... Uh, like a lot of the things you said, I've already have already been transpiring in my life. So there you go. Good. Well, you're going to rock it. Thank you so much for uh, for joining me. This was a, a truly wonderful conversation. So thank you. Likewise.